0: I'm Buzz Knight, the host of the Take on a Walk Podcast, Music History on Foot. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, or wherever you get your podcast. And when you follow us, you're never going to miss an episode. We'd also appreciate when you follow us, kindly leave us a review. That would really be helpful. Today, our guest is full of rich music history. He's a singer-songwriter who topped the charts on both sides of the Atlantic. His music has been covered by a range of musicians, from Morrissey to the Pet Shop Boys. He's embarking on a U.S. tour, which is going to take him to city wineries across the country, including Boston, on March the 11th. Welcome, Gilbert O'Sullivan, to Taking a Walk. Well, Gilbert, congrats on the upcoming tour, which includes uh, Boston on March 11th at City Winery, and also uh, works its way across the U.S. to other city wineries. Uh, New York on March 12th, Philadelphia March 15th, uh, St. Louis, Chicago, Atlanta, Nashville. It sounds like we're we're riding on a train, Gilbert, uh, with all these uh, stops. But uh, congrats on the tour.
3: Thank you. But well, normally, what we would be doing, um, we were doing the north, all the venues, uh, places you've mentioned, and then we would be going to the West Coast. But this time, we're, we're coming back to the UK and then going back to the West Coast in October, I think. So we're kind of splitting them up and stuff. But I'm really looking forward to this. And, I mean, it was two years ago that we, we first, uh, it was just a year before the pandemic, before COVID, we managed to do a few dates in America. And then the, the gap with COVID. Last year, beginning of last year, we we did um, quite a few days, and that's what's bringing us back this time. So it's been very special to be over there performing, and um, I'm really looking forward to it.
0: So paint the picture. You're in the Channel Islands in Mm. Jersey, correct?
3: Correct, yes. It's It's a small island, only nine miles by six miles, but it's only half an hour by plane to London. It's 50 minutes by boat to France. So it's, it's, it's a beautiful island. It's very healthy, good environment, healthy air. Nice beaches, nice beaches. the weather's slightly warmer than the UK. Um, a good place. It's been very productive for me in terms of songwriting. And, of course, it's been very good for my family with their two daughters, school and their education.
0: When you moved there, I think uh, as you were maybe trying to convince some of the, the town locals... Um, you said that you were really not the kind of person who throws televisions out the window uh, and uh, you, you lead a calm existence. Is that correct?
3: Well, here's the thing. To get into Jersey, the weird thing about being allowed into Jersey, you had to have a meeting with the economic advisor. He determined. You might be the wealthiest person in the world, but if he doesn't like you or if he finds something wrong about you, you don't get in. They let in at the time that we came in. They would only let about five or six people in this category that you were labeled under. And so for me, when I met this economic advisor, they never had a pop singer uh, in the island before. They had golfers and authors, uh, Jack Higgins and uh, various authors were were coming to Jersey and golfers, of course, Uh, but never a singer. And so the myth about uh, rock singers and pop singers throwing (laughs) sets out the window, I assured the economic advisor that the reason we were coming to Jersey was, of course, financially it helped, no doubt. But we had two young daughters ready for school, and Jersey was a good place to educate them. And I keep a very low profile. I do not get involved in things going on. In, in the, I just keep myself to myself. I'm all for, for, for being Gilbert O'Sullivan outside of Jersey when I go around the world. But when I'm back in Jersey, I just like to be just part of the community. Uh, and so that low profile. Seem to help. Anyway, he, the, he gave us the go-ahead.
0: <laughs> I was confused about something, though. When you mentioned uh, economic advisor, I, I thought our wives are our economic advisors.
3: <laughs> They're house advisors, and, and uh, they, they do have some input into that, I, I must say.
0: So take me back to uh, you as a 14-year-old. What, um, what motivated you to start writing songs?
3: Well, it wasn't so much to write songs to begin with. To begin with, it was the two things: one, one had the piano in the garden shed and stuff, and and because of the Beatles arriving in '62 with "Love Me Do" and then "Please Please Me," we all wanted to be in a band. So that started it off. And then I, you know, I was in a school band, then a youth club band, then a more serious band, and it's during that period I started to write. The big influences were Lennon McCartney for songwriting, Bacharach and David. Dauphin and King, Sadaka Greenfield, all the great songwriting teams. And, of course, from a, a voice point of view, uh, Bob Dylan was a huge influence because I don't have a great voice, but I do have, what I think, a distinctive voice, and he certainly had a distinctive voice. So the, combina- the combination of being influenced by Lennon McCartney and then being influenced vocally by Bob Dylan, if you heard some of my early demos <laughs> from the mid-'60s, you'd probably understand where that influence was coming <laughs> from.
0: Now, did you encounter over the years any of the individuals that you just mentioned that were influential?
3: No, I mean, I was invited to a reception by Paul McCartney when he, when he had his second solo album, The Big Do in London. But I'm, I'm quite shy and stuff, and, and I remember being in the hall where he was there with his wife, and they were over the corner dancing and just having a good time on their own. And I didn't, you know, I'm not one of those people that would go up to him and say, oh, you know, I'm so-and-so, and so and i like to, great to meet you. Uh, I'm not really like that. I, I, I have respect for a lot of people, admire admiration for a lot of people, him of course, and many other people. But but I, I um, so it, that's it. I uh, I met Ringo Starr once uh, to say hello to and and uh, let's see Bob Dylan. No, I think the likelihood of that ever happening would have been extremely remote. <laughs> but not, I love I love early Bob Dylan records. Loved him.
0: But when you were young too, you had had. Um some loss in your, in your life in terms of um, uh, your dad, I believe. And um, there had been some, some other challenges you faced. So um, music really channeled you in another creative direction uh, at that time, right?
3: But all the things it kept me sane, I mean, my father passing away, I was never very close to my dad. My older sister, Mari, is three years older than me. She has good memories of my father. I have very few, if any, memories of my father, which I deeply regret. I was 11 years old when he passed away. So I, I kind of regret that because I know my dad liked to gamble a bit and then greyhounds. <laughs> the goat, he, when he was in the army, they backed onto a, a racing track, horse racing track. So that, along with other soldiers in the army, they used to you know gamble away their money. But I know that, that, that if, if my father had been around for my success, one of the things he would have asked is for me to buy my horse, <laughs> which, of course, I would have gladly done. But the other issues in terms of uh, throughout my career, the legal issues and stuff, what kept me sane, what kept me grounded throughout all those periods of dissent and whatever, court cases, uh, was my family and music. It kind of just, it just held me together. It's always held me together. It's the one thing I feel I can do better than anything. And I'm one of those people that, That I don't need you, Buzz, to be able to tell me that I'm good. It's nice when you do that, but I'm not dependent on you doing that. In other words, you have people who you, I've seen people who are hugely gifted, but they need you to tell them if they're any good. And that's the danger thing. If if you depend on others to tell you how good you might be, you're in trouble. The key is that you may not be as good as you think you are, but thinking you are is good. (laughs) That's my philosophy.
0: Well, as far as the legal uh, challenge uh, part of things, um, your music was, was used at one point um, where it was a copyright infringement, uh, and it was one of the earliest uh, situations, I believe, maybe the first in terms of a copyright infringement uh, uh, suit. Is that correct?
3: It's sampling. It's the first sample case to go to court. So after that, anybody who was sampled, if you had music and they sampled it before my court case, they could have got away with it. They would have got away with it. Uh, But after my court case, uh, the judge said in stone, um, you know, it sets a precedent. So after that. So that's the positive thing. And the negative thing was, I mean, I needed to go to court like you need a hole in the head. Um, It's it's, the Bismarck scenario was that he sampled the track and. I, I told him he couldn't use it because he's a comic rapper, and I didn't like any association with that for that song, but he went ahead and did it anyway, so I had to go to court and I didn't go to court in England. I had to go to New York to do it, so I fought the case I won but um so there was a positive that came out of it for other people. but you know, who needs to go to court? <laughs> I don't recommend it
0: a draining process, needless to say, right
3: and expensive because the because here we are, I'm going to New York, and I have to pay the lawyers. And you can imagine what lawyers' bills are. So it was, I had to pay a lot of money up front before we even got into court. And the sad irony for me was I'm the one in court that had to go on the box first, go on the stand first to be questioned. Bismarck, he wasn't even there. <laughs> Just the arrogance of these people, I don't understand. The judge was very much on my side, thank God.
0: <laughs> so you, you studied art. And um, you also played in a band called Rick's Blues with um, a future founder of the band Supertramp, uh, Rick Davies. What was that like?
3: Well, that was great because that's what I mentioned earlier, you know, starting because of the Beatles, we all wanted to be in a band. So from the school band to the youth club band to the more serious band. The more serious band was Rick's Blues. Rick is one of these gifted musicians. He's just an incredible musician. He he's great piano player. I was the drummer in the band. Um, he's a fantastic drummer. I mean, he's a better drummer than than I could ever be. I mean, he, his collection of records and the influences that he had that he would listen to. For example, we used to do in the band Bill Doggett numbers. Bill Doggett in America. Not many people know who Bill Doggett is, but Rick did. And I would bring up the Beatles album and say, "Listen to Roll Over Beethoven" by the Beatles, and he'd say, "You get Chuck Berry out of his bag and say, you know, listen to the real thing." So Rick was a fantastic musician, and we could have turned professional. So with Rick playing the keyboard and me beginning to write songs as the drummer, we made a demo in London of two of my songs. So we could have turned professional. We were that good. But the bass player and the guitar player uh, were on apprenticeships, so they didn't want to risk uh, leaving. So that meant that Rick and I had to decide what to do. So Rick needed to be in a band, and I was on my own. And so Rick then joined a band called The Joint, which became a band called The Lonely Ones, which ended up being Supertrump. But I ended up just going on my own up to London to break into the business. And uh, that's pretty much how it went.
0: So when uh, your songs became hits, we'll talk about Alone Again Naturally or Claire or Get Down. I mean, were you surprised at all of the aspect of what fame uh, suddenly was part of your life?
3: Only the success outside of the UK, I didn't look, I wasn't sort of wanting to change the world or to take on the world when I got wanted to make, I wanted to make a record, I wrote songs, I wanted CBS to give me a record deal, which they did reluctantly, and I wanted to get a record out there and to have it released and stuff, I only saw, thought in terms of success was the UK, I didn't think in terms of Europe or America, I mean my goodness, so when all that happened, it was, it, was, it was special to have the success in America with Alone Again, uh, as it was the success I had in Europe and other parts of the world with various songs. But, uh, but, but as I say, uh, to begin with, I just wanted the postman to be whistling it when he walked up the drive with the, with, the, with the letters, and I would have been a happy boy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Now, do you feel that if... Um... If Alone Again naturally came out today as a new song, um, do you think it would be received any differently than it was uh, when it first came out?
3: I think it's interesting you say that because I don't think Alone Again would be, despite it being one of the few songs that deals with suicide. uh, I think that the one that would be difficult today would be Claire because it it kind of depresses me a little and stuff. I mean, I wrote Claire as a thank you to my manager and his wife Gordon Mills for managing me, his wife for feeding me, uh, cooking dinners for me. So I used to babysit for them, four children. Claire would be the one getting up. And you get attached to kids. I come from a large family. It's no problem. Claire used to get attached to me and call me Uncle Ray. And so the song was written as a thank you to her. There's nothing more about that. But today, in the environment we're in today with paedophilia, child and sexuality and, and abuse, uh, it, would, it would be, I think it, it would be a problem. It's not a problem in concert. Everybody loves it and stuff, but in terms of, uh, of it being recorded today, I think arguably probably certain radio stations probably wouldn't even play it now because of that link with a grown-up man, although I was 22 years old, and a young child and stuff. So there you go. So I find that, that kind of depressing but, but interest, an interesting aspect of how things have changed in terms of what people can say and what they can't in a song.
0: You had a uh, an album called "I'm a Writer, Not a Fighter," and you encountered the great Muhammad Ali as you were doing some uh, publicity shots around that release. Uh, can you talk about that experience?
3: Well, there's a few things about that. There's one of you know we had done the album "Writing Not a Fighter." I you know I did boxing as a schoolboy and a junior. I had about thirty-two odd fights as a schoolboy and little trophies. Then you move into the junior stage, and, and you get you get you get uh, sets of cutlery and stuff, which you can, which your mum is usually pretty happy with if you win. And uh, <clears throat> but I gave it up as a junior because it started to hurt. <laughs> so so you know so we thought, well, let's approach Muhammad Ali. My P- PR agent said, uh, "You've got this album, You're calling it a right another fighter. You did boxing. Let's see if we can uh, spar a few rounds with Muhammad Ali." So we went to his training camp. I think this was at the time when he was. Uh, he had refused to, what do you call it, to join up. To,
0: to oh, for the draft. yeah
3: for the draft. So I think he was, he, was being, he was spending a lot of time at his training camp. Anyway, we went up there and it was, it was fine. And we took pictures. I'll tell you a nice thing. My flat in London where my older daughter lives, Cara, she's in publishing. Uh, but in the flat, there's a photograph of myself with Muhammad Ali, fists up to each other. It looked like we are about to, to spar. And my daughter tells me when her friends come round and they look at the picture, they all know who Muhammad Ali is. <laughs> they say, who's the guy with him?
0: <laughs> that is really nice. Did you feel he had a special aura about him? I, I think there's yes
3: and no, uh, Muhammad. He was a fantastic boxer. I mean, we loved him as a boxer, no question about that. But there was a side of him too. I mean, I remember... A driver who used to drive us around in London when we were touring, 72, 73, he drove Muhammad Ali on a few occasions, and his memory of that wasn't that great still. So I guess there, I think there are more pluses than minuses attached to him. But what he went through, I mean, he was, in in, in a way, extremely special. First time ever somebody like that achieved such great success. Fantastic boxer. What can you say?
0: Why did you never fall into the uh, excesses trap that so many musicians and rock stars fall into? What's
3: that? What, like what?
0: Well, just excessive, uh, you know, drugs, alcohol, bad behavior, etc. cetera.
3: No, not me. I mean, I, I, I'll give you another little uh, uh, insight. In London in 67, when Flower Power was massive in London, and um – it was a great time to be in London. We had a flat in London, three of us, uh, three students. Three of were. But, um, but I had a friend who worked in an advertising agency and his wife. And, and on the weekends, they would come round and we would have a meal in the flat. <laughs> and on quite a few occasions, the other guys in the flats would be there with their friends and they would be smoking cannabis. And and Bob, uh, his wife and myself, would be in the corner eating fish and chips. <laughs> we, <laughs> We weren't interested in that because we just thought it was all a big con. We always felt that what they were doing was smoking something and they wanted to believe it was affecting them, but we don't think it was. And so, yeah. You know, so other excesses, no. I mean, I'm really down to earth, very basic. I mean, I, I'm not extravagant. If I like a glass of wine, I'm disciplined. I need to have it on a Friday and a Saturday or if I go out for a meal. So, you know, so I, I'm pretty normal underneath whatever success it might appear I've achieved, and I have achieved a lot. Uh, I'm pretty. I'm pretty grounded uh, in 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 the real world. I mean, I, you know, I meet people, and it's 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 just just normal. There's nothing. I'm no exception to anybody else in in many ways. So no, there's no nothing. Uh, no, <laughs> no TVs throwing. Out. Now, what else could there be? I think Buzz is a bit
0: boring. Buzz. <laughs> You're a gent. You're a gent. But your tour is called. Um, is is isn't it called the Driven Tour? But it's the album, the latest album is called Driven, which is pretty
3: much, that sums me up. That's pretty much how I am in terms of songwriting, in terms of what I want to do recording wise, getting product out. BMG are very supportive for me, a major record company, very supportive. So I have that in me. I've always had that driven thing of wanting to, you know, if I write a song and nothing happens about it, I'll write another one, I'll write the next one. I let it get me down for a short time, then I move on. Uh, because it's the songs always that keep me looking ahead, keep me with a, a good perspective on what it is I want to do. It's all separate to my family. I think there's that famous phrase I read in the paper that you're the most important, for my wife this is, you're the most important person in my life next to my music.
0: <laughs> but um, you don't go to pubs. You, don't, you Do not you drive? Do you drive no. a car?
3: No, I don't drive. My dad didn't drive, so I don't drive. I would be very bad because I'm, I like to sit in the back. I mean, I I'm always have songs going around in my head. I would be terrible. I'd be an accident waiting to happen. Dangerous person on the road to drive. But, uh, but having said that, when I lived in Weybridge in Surrey in England, a private estate, private estate, I bought a Willie's Jeep. My gardener convinced me to buy a Willie's Jeep. So it's a private estate. So there's roads around the private estate. And I did drive the Jeep <laughs> badly around that estate without hurting anyone.
0: I know there's a couple of topics that are uh, important to you today um and maybe you could talk about them. One is certainly uh, racial profiling um and the other is climate change. Um can you talk about those topics and uh, how important they are? Well, global warming,
3: I mean global warming if you listen to the if you heard you know, because I, I like to incorporate things in my lyrics which are relevant to today in a subtle way, not to be blatantly obvious about what you're trying to say. God forbid you should be preaching like a bono or something. But, but I can get them in there. And so if Global Warming uh, crops up a few times on this current album. Just It's just there. Because I think all of us, for it, it's there, and we have to learn to deal with it. Racial, what would you mean in that, in that sense? That's a broad subject.
0: Well, I I would say if we certainly look at this country, um there's been many challenges in large cities when it comes to racial profiling and when it comes to certainly, you know, the important and great work that uh the police departments do, but um there's been unfortunate scenarios um, that have occurred and uh, that certainly um, have been very public.
3: No, I, I, I mean, I observe that. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't necessarily write about that because that's on your home ground. I mean, I'm, I'm conscious of it and we all like, would like to see that ending. Um, I know in England, in Europe, the, strange enough in England, th- there is an element of that. I'll give you one example. And I've actually incorporated that in a song on this current album. And there was this couple, which I read about, they were in a, quite a fancy Jeep, a Range Rover, in, in central London where they lived. And his partner, the girl, had a, a baby. They had a baby, which was there in the car with them. Stopped by police when they were driving. They were black, both um, and black people. And they were stopped by a police car. And they were searched, and they were harassed, and treated very badly. I mean, they had nothing. There was nothing in them. They hadn't done anything wrong. He wasn't driving fast. It's just that the, in the police mind's eye, I think, when well, we know they're in a fancy Range rangeover, should they, should they be riding a Range rangeover? And you, so, you know, so you see that going on. So I observed that, and I actually incorporated that into a verse in one of the songs on my album. So that's an example, I think, of what we see going on in this country. We won't talk about Ireland, Northern Ireland, and that. that's something so we'll get nowhere. If we try to
0: deal with that. Agree. Um, so you're on a desert island, imagine it, and uh, you have an opportunity to bring a handful of your favorite albums that you can't live without. What would some of those desert island discs be for Gilbert O'Sullivan?
3: Uh, well, it'd be a Beatles album. Please, please me, the first album recorded in a day for all the times I play Beatle records. Um, the first album will always seem to be the one that I go back to because it's the fact that it was all recorded in one day. So that would be one. The Nina Simone album, Me, Nina Simone, quite an influence for me on, on the piano thing. Bob Dylan, and Bob Dylan. Um, but, I you know, I like, um, I mean, those are sort of obvious examples. Um, I, you know, I have so many albums I enjoy listening to. For example, uh, Bonnie Raitt, who got the Grammy for that uh we didn't know about that. You know, I got my daughter to play it for the first time yesterday. I love Bonnie Raitt. Um, mm-hmm. I have a uh, few of our albums, and, and uh, there's a track I play for almost every other day around six o'clock in the evening. <clears throat> I play soundtracks from all musicals in the morning, and I play Beatles stuff and, and uh, new albums in the afternoon, and I play What I Like, uh, Joni Mitchell. Yeah, Joni Mitchell album I, I would put in that half dozen. And um, and in the evening, yeah, in the evening I, I play... Uh, Tony Mitchell or Carole King or, um, and, and Randy Newman, you know, Feels Like Home, you know, fantastic and stuff. So, so those, are, those are some of the records I would take with me. But where's the record player?
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. We didn't answer that part of the question. <laughs> but that's a pretty good collection, Gilbert, that you brought with you. <laughs> yeah. Well,
3: but I thought the question you were going to ask me, what's the one thing? Because they have, like, um, this program over here desert island discs where people are brought on and they're, they're, t- they're allowed to bring one item uh, to the island. What would that one item be? In my case, it would be a portable radio with um, a wind-up radio. I love radio. Radio is the key to all my early songwriting because that's how I was able to hear great songs because I had the radio in bed with me at night, just the battery. Living. I still love that in the radio. Um, so, you know, oh, and radios are always on in the house throughout the whole day here. Because the radio is the most important thing to hear new music. That's how you get into music in the first place, because you're hearing it for the first time. Um, so I would, have, I would, a little wind-up radio would be my luxury.
0: <laughs> Gilbert, define success for me.
3: Um, uh, well, it's I think as I mentioned earlier, it's set out really quite categorically that that I, I write songs because I love it. And then when I've written one of the things a good song, I, I want to try and get it recorded, get a record company interested. I achieve that. And then I want to get released. Uh, I achieve that. And then it sells. But I'm not looking to sell. I'm not saying it must sell this. It's not about that to begin with. It's just about the joy of having a record that you've written, that you've made, and you can hold in your hand. There's something very special about that. Uh, so that, for me, determines pretty much what success is.
0: But what a joy it's been uh, talking to you. I uh, wish you well on the upcoming tour. You're playing at an amazing uh, series of venues in the city wineries. Uh, I know you'll have a blast, and I know your fans will have a blast. Uh, thank you so much for, for being on. It's
3: a pleasure, Buzz. Nice good talking to you as well.
0: Taking a Walk with Buzz Night is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.